Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Scripture passage today is Matthew chapter 14, 22 through 33. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on, on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the, the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Word of the Lord. Thank you, Heather. Good morning again, and welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. I was reading an article just last week about the features, the positive and negative features of the internet, and how what was interesting about the article is it showed how the often what's, what's so good about the internet is also what's bad about it. So one of the great things about the internet is that you can really quickly connect with anybody and everybody, anywhere around the world, the smallest factions of people can get together. And that's, that's amazing. But it's also one of the bad things, too, because you can connect and have these very thin, disembodied relationships where what we tend to do is we tend to overthink that people know who we are when we, people really don't know who we are through these cultivated spaces. And what I find interesting about this is that the reason why this happens is because I think we, the internet's so, still so new, we think the internet's just like a place to go get content or go get relationships. And what we don't realize is the internet is a place where we practice digital liturgies. Um, we have a liturgy. We, we've been practicing it this, this morning. Your bulletin is a worship liturgy where we go through a practice that we do every single week. We go through praise. We have songs of praise. We go up. We go down into confession. We listen. We go back out into the world. It's a liturgy. It's a worship liturgy. Your bulletin even has explanations on the side. If you're not a Christian or you don't know, or you don't know what you believe, or maybe you are a Christian and you're not quite sure why, why do we do these practices, we try to explain it for you. But we have digital liturgies that we're practicing online that form us, that, that cultivate an a expectation that we want to show other people. It cultivates a... Um, a way that we want other people to see us. And so when we scroll, we scroll past things we don't want to see. And we click on the people and the things we do want to see. And the algorithms create these spaces where we get more and more of what we want and less of what we don't want. And so that what it does is it creates a, a practice 
where we're used to only hearing that which we, what we want. And so it's my space, and it's my truth, and if, it, if it, I don't like it, then it's not real, and I don't, I don't have to look at it. And with this, with, what we're realizing, slowly, I think, culturally, is this has created these siloed spaces where we only are now fractured into these various tribes, which I think is easier to control, but also we have created these spaces now that are toxic to real relationships. They're, they're thinner. They're not, uh, we, we don't have as much bandwidth to be able to go out and meet people who are different from us now. That's what we have. And I believe that this is, makes it harder for us to have uh, not just relationships, but it, this, these liturgies, these digital liturgies are toxic to curiosity. So what we've started here at Redeemer Lincoln Square is this series to try to develop more curiosity. As Bruce introduced earlier, we do Q&R after every service because we care about curiosity. One of our values uh, that I think is, is unique that I don't think you can hear in a lot of other churches is we value questions in those who ask them. Again, because we're trying to develop this curiosity in a, each one of us. And so our series is we're looking at questions that Jesus asked. And today, look at verse 31. This is the question that Jesus asked. He says, why do you doubt? Why did you doubt? And so I believe this, this question resonates, this topic resonates with New Yorkers. Whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, I, I think we, what I love about New York is there's so many different people and so many different views out there. It's hard not to come in contact with people who are different from you. That's why I love the city and why I'm raising my kids in the city. Because I think it helps us work through these things. But I think doubt, no matter what you believe, this is a topic that resonates with us. Now the story around this question is one of the most well-known stories, but I'd argue it's one of the most abused ones, and you'll, you'll see why. It's Jesus walking on water. So just two parts today. We're going to look at why do we doubt, and secondly, what do we do about it? All right, really easy. Why do we doubt, and then what do we do about it? So why do we doubt? There are three reasons in this text about why we doubt. Number one, reason number one from the text, we have amnesia. We have memory loss. And I look, you know, I'm, I'm not a, uh, a doctor, so I looked up, like, why do people have memory loss? And, you know, this, which is always dangerous when you go to Google and find the first thing that it says. But the first thing it says, supposedly, one of the reasons why we have memory loss is the neurons are less connected. This is sounding so not scientific. But um, I get, the neurons are less connected, so the reality that passes by, you're not able to hold on to it as much. And you say, okay, what is... What is the memory loss have to do with doubt. Well, the Greek word for doubt in our text is the word tisazo. And tisazo, the, the illusion, the imagery, is as if you're going in two different directions at the same time. So I'll illustrate this. Let's say you're hungry, and you want to go to the kitchen and get a meal because you're hungry. And you get up and you start walking towards the kitchen. But if you forget between the time you got up and time you got to the kitchen, you're like, why am I here? And why, why did I get up? And so then you start going the other direction. So you can go two different directions because of the lack of memory. And you say, well, where is that about as far as doubt? Well, the reason why you go in two different directions is because you can't remember. And the disciples are having that experience right here in this text. So try to put yourself in the feet of the disciples. What have they experienced at this exact moment? At this space, what they've seen to date is that Jesus has turned water into wine. He's raised the, the girl from the dead. He's healed the centurion's servant. He's healed the paralyzed, the sick, the, um, the, the needy. 
He's, he's uh, helped the blind, the mute. So many miracles. And yet, they're still struggling against the waves. Why? Because they've forgotten. When people find out that I'm a minister, they say, oh yeah, you know, I just wish I saw some more miracles in my life, and then maybe I could, could believe too. I, people in our church have said that. They say, I just need to see more miracles. And I'm, when I read this text, what this is telling us is more miracles are not going to help because you will forget them. Even if you saw a miracle after miracle after miracle, like these guys, they still doubted, and so would you. And so Jesus is strolling by in our life, on the top of the waves, and we've forgotten them. So what I, before we move on, I don't want you to wish for more miracles. I believe you've seen them, and we've forgotten them. And so what we should wish for is instead to remember what we've forgotten. One of the best reasons for you to, to journal is not because in the moment, it, you know, it, it, sometimes it helps to write it down in the moment, but often we forget, and when we go through a bad time, we need to go back into our journals and see how God has provided, see how he's moved in our lives and what he's done and what he's doing, because we forget, number one. Okay, number two, we have memory problems, but we also have attention issues. My wife and I, sometimes we, when we're going to go on a date, we go out to eat at a nice restaurant, we put on some nice clothes, and we sit there, and I feel really bad for my wife, because after 20 years, what we've realized is that I fidget a lot. Even up here, I'm, I'm always moving. I'm always, uh, I can't sit still. And so I do that because the, the fidgeting, the movement, helps stimulate and allows me to focus and, and look at my wife. So I'm doing great, because I'm like, how's it going? How's life? And her eyes are bouncing up and down, trying to follow me. And by the end, she has a headache. And I'm like, this, is, this was a great meal. I, loved, I had a great time. And she's like, yeah, it was great. I, it was wonderful. Now, at times, she's like, can you just stop moving? And I say, okay, sure, I can stop. And then I start looking around and moving around. My attention starts waning. And the same thing happens to these disciples. Again, right before this passage, they had just seen Jesus feed the 5,000. They took something they that looked like too little, and he made too much. He took some bread and some fish, too little, and made it too much. Now in our text, he takes something that looks like too much, the waves, the storm, and by walking on them, he, sh he shows that they're too little, that he's bigger than that. He clearly is trying to show his disciples that he is Lord over all creation. He's in charge of the weather, he's in charge of the food, and yet the focus in our text, and even the, the feeding the 5,000 is not on him. The attention by the disciples is on what they lack. And I would argue it's the same thing for us. Our attention is out of whack because we focus more on the need than on the provider. We focus more on the lack that we have than the one who's going to provide what we lack. Why? And I think the answer why is because our hunger for the provision keeps us away from looking for the provider. Our attention's on the storm so we don't see Jesus walking through the storms with us. Look at verse 26. I, I never noticed this before. But in verse 26, it says, when the disciples saw him walking. And I realized, wait a second, when? That means that he could have been walking the whole time. I mean, when, when means that at some point they were able to finally focus and see him. It makes me wonder, like, how often do we not see Jesus walking beside us in the storms? How often... Uh, that we just don't see him because our circumstances are, are coming in at 3D 
and yet Jesus' love and heart, we, we barely see. I, I heard somebody put it this way. It's like, uh, you know, those new 4K OLED screens with like million depth dark pixels and stuff like that. It seems like our, our circumstances, our life, the hardship, the hurt, the things that we feel, the pain, that's coming in at that level. Whereas, you know, Jesus' provision, his love is like written in like smudged, slightly like penciled, slightly semi-erased, small font in parts of our hearts that we can't even see. That's what it seems like. Because the waves are more real than the one who made the waves. Where in your life today might you feel like you've been given too little? Where maybe you haven't been loved enough. Maybe you haven't been provided enough. Maybe you don't, you don't feel like you have enough. Where is that? Or where do you feel like you've been given too much? The storms are too much. The cancer is too much. That layoff was too much. The guilt and the shame was too much. That is changing our attention. We can't see him. We can't focus on him. And I think it's contributing to our doubt. Number two. Third reason why we doubt is that we don't believe he's really good. Go back to our text. Why is the attention more on the waves than on him? Why are they, I mean, they're rowing incessantly just, you know, I could do my job. They're, they're not, they're looking at their works and not on what Jesus has done in the past, not focusing on him. I think there's a lot of reasons underneath why um, they weren't focusing. But at, at some level, I think it's because they doubted God's goodness. Look at Peter. When he sinks in verse 30, there's a whole debate right now that's going on in um, sort of academia about why Peter sinks. Is it because he doesn't have enough faith? Is it because he's afraid? Is it because I actually think that debate is a little intramural, and, and it's not the core of the passage. Whether, no matter what it is, underneath that is at some level doubting God's goodness. If it's fear, if it's faith, whatever it is. And I would argue that you can trace that back, that progression comes back to the first sin with Adam and Eve in the garden. They had one job, right? Don't eat from the tree from the knowledge of good and evil. What, not because God was never going to give it. The problem was they weren't sure he was. How do I know you're going to provide for, the, with, for me? How do I know you're going to give me the fruit that I need, the fruit that I want? And we are still asking that question today. How do I know? How do I know you're really going to be good to me, God? How do I know you're really going to give me what I need and what I want? In the Bible, in Romans 8, God works all things for the good of those who trust in him. And I think it's easier to believe that when there's like little waves or no waves. But when they're crashing on you, when they feel like it's nonstop, that's when we doubt his goodness. That's when we start looking back through our entire lives and we start reinterpreting the past with our present feelings. Maybe he never loved us. Maybe he doesn't really exist. Maybe, just maybe, I'm out here on my own. And so our doubts are deeply tied to our view of God's goodness. And I would want us to ask them, where are we not believing God's goodness today in our lives? I think there's, I think there's aspects. Maybe you, you believe his goodness in your health, because you've been a healthy person, but not in your relationships. Maybe you believe him in your relationships, but not in your job. Where are you doubting his goodness? You can call yourself a Christian. I really believe this. You can call yourself a Christian. You can go to church on Sundays. You can, um, you know, have all the traits. But like these disciples, when the storms come, when the winds blow, you row all night, 
because you don't stop to consider. And if the Bible says he works all things for the good, you have to ask yourself, does he even without cancer? Right? I can't see how another illness or another layoff or another blow up or another anxiety moment or another you know, guilt or shame moment in my life, how is he still good? That's why we doubt. We doubt when we don't. Okay, last point. Fine. Those are the three reasons, right? Memory loss, attention, lack of his goodness. Now, how do we meet those reasons for our doubts? At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. And I think the text tells us, I mean, if I, couldn't, if I want to zoom out, it says you have to see Jesus in the storm. But uh, when and how does that happen, right? We have to unpack that. Before we get into it, I want to give you a prerequisite. You can't start going on this journey, and you won't go on this journey, and you won't care about this until you start sinking. The text is telling me very strongly, I'm telling you, that the only reason why you're going to actually start seeking these answers is if you realize you're sinking. Peter doesn't call out for God to save him until he knows that he's sinking. Peter doesn't actually reach out his hand until he knows that he's sinking. Peter can't be caught by the Lord's hand until he sees and is actually sinking. And what does that mean? I think some of you are questioning right now, why is God allowing all these things to happen to you? And I'm not up here to tell you that I know for every reason why there's suffering and evil and pain, but at some level, this text is saying that whatever those things are is to help you to realize that you're sinking. And when you do, then you can reach out. When you do, then you can— Actually, the the process here is he calls out, then he reaches out, then he's pulled out, and then he's caught and safe. And I guess I want to push you, the prerequisite before— I I, I almost don't want to—I'm worried about going too far and too fast because I don't think you're really going to be ready for it. The prerequisite— is that you have to see that you're already sinking. Hebrews 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, right? That's the attention span problem. But you can't do that. You're not going to want to do that until you need to do that. And so that's how we're going to have to start seeing Jesus in the storm of our doubts, is we have to actually let ourselves realize our real nature and where we are. So that's the prerequisite. Okay, fine. Go back through the reasons. Let's, let's do it quickly. Number one, me- memory loss, amnesia. The answer to that, when you have memory loss, is to remember, to reflect, and to pray. When I was in high school, I think, it, I, think I was 15 or 16, I memorized a section of Shakespeare's The Henry, Henry V. You know, it's, you know, what's he that wishes so, my cousin Westmoreland? Nay, my fair brothers, if we are marked to die, it doesn't have to do our country lost, but to live, the greater few, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray. Okay, see, I can keep going. Nobody's listening, really. Um, <laughs> And it's what's cool. I know you don't know Shakespeare because I've already jumped around in that, in that little passage. But it took a long time to get there. 
And I still remember it. I can't unremember it now because I spent so much time to try to remember it because memory takes time, it takes reflection, it takes uh, process. And even Jesus sets himself to this. So what's sort of buried in all this, at the very beginning, in verse 23, it says that Jesus went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Now, why would Jesus have to do that? He doesn't have to. He wants to because he wants to sit in a space to reflect and to remember and to think and to pray and to connect. And I would argue, you can't, the way to work against the memory loss is to to sit in spaces of memory. This is why... um, I try to regularly pray through ACTS. It's an acronym. A for adoration, C, confession, T, thanksgiving, S for supplication. And when you go in that order, there's always something to adore God for. There's always something to confess and say, I don't adore you the way I should. Then there's always something to be thankful for, saying thank you for still loving and and meeting me despite what I've done. And then when you supplicate, when you ask, it, it changes it. And I would argue you'd be surprised by how much you remember in those times. Not just about who you are, but about who he is. And I would argue it would help with our memory loss. True story. A friend of mine was telling me about uh, a couple in his church. They'd been married for 40 years, but the husband had early onset dementia. And um, this became so pronounced when the man one time came up to to the wife and said, you know, I think we should get married. I think we we should get married. Let's do it. And she was like, uh, we've been married for 40 years. Now, she didn't say this to him because apparently you're not supposed to do that with folks who have dementia. So every day, he would get down on his knee and try to propose, which is, is sweet at first. And then you realize, wait, I, I, I try to put myself in her shoes. How would I feel like if 40 years of my marriage just disappeared from, from my spouse? I mean, this, was, this was, had to be really hard for her. And so what she started doing is saying, when he would get down on the knee, he said, thank you so much. This is great. I'd love to be married to you. And he'd feel good for that, that whole day. But then the next day he'd wake up, forget, and they have to do it all over again. One time, she got some friends to help her out. And they got her a gown and flowers and a photographer. And they actually, she said, you know what? Today, let's do it. Let's get married. And he was so happy. He was, he was like on cloud nine at how he dressed perfectly well, and he was there, and he was ready. He was going to get married to his wife for the first time. And when I heard that story, I realized, oh my goodness, as kind as that wife was to her husband of 40 years, Jesus' patience with us, with our forgetfulness, is far greater. We're, we're being invited to the wedding feast every single day. Jesus is standing there with us, with our dementia about him, saying, I'm still here. I'm wa-. When you're, you realize that he's walking with you in the waves, right? I think he's been there the whole time. But you haven't seen him because you've forgotten him. So the first step to working on your doubts, if you really want, are serious, is go down memory lane. Go into prayer. Go into reflection. Do that. That's number one. Now, okay, number two. If your attention is part of, you know, if we're seeing things, if our attention is uh, misfocused, how do you work against that? I think the way you work against it, the way you're going to be healed is that you see his sacrifice more vividly than the waves. That's it. I'm not saying you ignore, I mean, be careful. You're not ignoring your circumstances. You're not ignoring the waves and storms of your life. I think that's impossible. I'm saying the more you see the storms that he went through for your life, 
the fact that he did will help you and bracket you and, uh, to get your mind around the storms of your life. And when you see him, that Jesus walked through this, this storm, why could he walk, th- have you thought about that? Why can he walk through this storm untouched? He can walk through this storm untouched because he walked through the ultimate storm. He was going to walk through the ultimate storm later on of sin and death for you. This was nothing compared to that. And the fact that he did is why now you can, at some level, walk above and not drown on the waves because he was drowned under the wave of death. Let me be very clear again. Being a Christian is not judged by how well you weather the storms. There is ugly crying. It is okay to do so. Being a Christian is not judged by whether you have winds blowing at all or not. Some people say, well, you have a great life. You must be doing something good. No. Too many people read this passage, and the way they read it is, you know, either be like Peter and have faith and jump out of the boat, or don't be like Peter, don't sink. And I think they're missing the point. Because the passage isn't about Peter, it's about Jesus. And you say, prove it. The answer is in verse 27. The way Jesus identifies himself, it looks, we, we pass over it every time. But when he identifies himself in verse 27, he says, it is I. And that means nothing much to you, but in Greek, it's the phrase, uh, ego me. And ego me is I am, literally. And what a lot of commentaries will point out is this is how God identified himself in the Old Testament, right? When God spoke out of the burning bush, and Moses said, you know, who do, how do I say who, who sends me? Who do I say sends me? He says, what came out was, I am that I am. And so when Jesus identifies himself like this, what he's saying is, you cannot put me in a little box as a nice little teacher or a nice little good guy and lovey-dovey and kumbaya. He's saying, no, I am the creator and sustainer of all things. And only when you see him as that will our attentions move off the waves and onto him. Where his presence, the, the prominence of him will grow. Not, not the fact that the waves aren't still there, that the circumstances are there. You're going to have them and you already have them and, and you'll have more of them. But your vision can be captured by him when you see him. And, when, and frankly, when you fail to see him, what's really happening is, you, is you're letting the power of the waves push out the powerful. That the, the, the waves move out the wave creator. When you doubt, you're not just doubting because you forget. It's your attention has been placed on the wrong things. So the answer is ask. Friends, ask Jesus to be in your boat. Ask him to come on in. Ask him to be the captain of your life and set sail. And if you did... Look what happens in verse 33. The only thing left when he gets back in the boat, that says those that were in the boat worshipped. It's the only thing left. No more striving, rowing. I mean, not to say, see, we conflate the, the metaphor. We're not saying rowing means there's the things that you have to do in your life. Sure. But there's the rowing where it's all up to me. I have to. I, I must. If I don't, I won't. And Jesus says, no, it's just worship. It's the only thing left. All right, last Last point. You don't trust his goodness. How do you fix that as a doubt? The answer is you have to see his beauty. I think everybody in the room, whether you're a Christian or not, we would agree, right, that beauty is good. Everybody loves beauty. So how do we see Jesus as the biggest beauty in our life? Because I think that will help us be able to focus on him, to see him as a beauty. 
We have to move Jesus from the abstract. I think a lot of us, you know, he's abstract. He's, a, he's on the peripheral. He's distant. I don't know. I don't connect. So how do we put him front and center where we don't forget? And the answer is, that, is this. You always pay attention to what's beautiful. You do. You can't not. In fact, when something's really beautiful, it, you have to gaze on it. You can't stop gazing on it. It, it captures your imagination. You, you go somewhere else and you're still thinking about it. Real beauty does that. I've told this story before years ago. I was biking through um, the transverse, one of the transverses here in, in the park, um, through it with, one, with my daughter who was young at the time, and uh, we got an accident. Her foot got stuck in the bike. We flipped. Her ankle broke. It was traumatic. It was terrible. It was really risky uh, to, be, to be on those transverses. There's no bike lane. I've never taken my kids on it, through the park that way since and never will. But it, it was terrible. We were in the emergency room, and the worst part about it was it was my fault. And there's nothing, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't blame shift it. I, I knew it was me, and I was guilty, and it led to shame, and um, I fell into a deep depression. And I know there's a lot of different types of depression out there, but for me, it was, um, I couldn't eat, couldn't sleep. I lost this, af- I lost sort of feeling. It wasn't sadness. It was um, just a lack of affect. I, couldn't, I didn't have anything left. I've told that story here before, but I've never actually told you this part. Months later, I was still in it. This happened in November. In February, I get a call from a longtime friend. Um, back when I grew up in the city, this, this, we went over to her house all the time and, and did Thanksgiving together. Um, and she called me. She was in Florida, and one of her friends uh, her husband was dying of cancer. And the dying wish of this husband was to go see this brand new Broadway show called Hamilton. And it had only been a com- couple months out, and it was crazy. If, if you remember when Hamilton first came out, the tickets were in the, the orchestra was thousands of dollars. The original cast, the hype, the mania, and all he wanted to do was to go see this show with his wife. And then he died. And my friend called me and said the wife, to honor him, didn't want to go to the show. So, so she said, do you want these tickets to go to see Hamilton? And it was, to be honest, guys, it was the last thing I wanted to do. I did not want to do anything. And yet we, didn't, we couldn't turn down the hottest ticket in town, so we went. And we went even though I was depressed. And I actually still vividly remember my wife trying to hold my hand, and I... And I it just laid there limp because I, I felt nothing. I sat, I think we were sitting second or third row, and Jim Carrey was behind me, and he's funny, and I didn't think he was funny because um, <laughs> I was depressed. But it was, I, was, I was impressed. I was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. We were second, third row, front center. I remember feeling the spit from the, the, the singing. And by the end of that show, I felt a glimmer of light hitting me through the, through the shadow, through the darkness. Because why? Because the art and the beauty of the music, it started awakening something inside of me that had been closed down. Because beauty and art connects. It moves us. And it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the death of this man. And I, we got these tickets. But because I was there, I was stirred. And I realized something. If Hamilton could do that in an evening, working against my own guilt and my own shame, 
and my own depression, what if, what if we could see the beauty of Jesus not just in an evening, but on a daily level? What if the song and dance of Jesus, his love, the vividness of his, see, we say the phrase, Jesus died for me, and it doesn't mean anything, but what if it did, folks? What if that actually was powerful in your life again? That phrase isn't just a throwaway phrase, but it, it's a life-changing reality in your heart. That then you could, you could walk into the ultimate storm of our lives. He could walk into the guilt and shame of what I had done on that bicycle. And he could look at me and say, yeah, you did that, but I still love you. And it's not going to have the last say in your life. And it's not going to have the last say in your life either. Because why? Because the ultimate story of his sacrifice, friends, it brackets the pain and the hurt and the shame. And it can do it in your life too. Because all beauty does that. And the deeper beauty of Jesus, all beauty points to that deeper beauty of Jesus. It all ends in that story because of the presence of his love. And so to end, this is all I want to ask. Will you gaze on his beauty? Will you, will you put yourself in those spaces? There's so many, we live in a world where there's so much be- awesome distraction and entertainment. And we're missing the beauty of Jesus because of it. But if you did, you would be able to handle the storms. You could lose your spouse. And you know what Jesus would say to you? He would come to you and say, it is I. Let's say you never have a spouse. He will sit with you and say, it is I. Let's say that you struggle with guilt and shame. Jesus is saying to you, it is I. The rough waters won't drown you as you grab his hand. You won't go under, I promise. You can sing in the rain. You can sing in the storms because I have his love and that love can never be taken away. Friends, one of our vision of this church is to live joy, but you can only rejoice and live joy if you can hold on to something that can never be taken away. And this is it. Will you? Gaze on his beauty. Let it awaken you again. Let it remind you of his love and so that works against your memory loss. Let it refocus attention onto him because you see his goodness, because you see his beauty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't know where everybody is in this room. I don't know what they, often we, some of us in this room aren't struggling at all. We're, we're doing fine. We're fine and dandy, and yet, Father, I, we're pulled in different directions. That's what our doubts do. Thank you so much for the, for the example of the disciples who were filled with doubts, and we realized, wait, doubts and faith are not against each other. We can actually have them. We don't have to be challenged by them. Instead, we can use them and move through them. I pray for the men and women in this room that they would realize that there's so many things that are trying to capture our gaze. It's the same old story. It's nothing new. It's always been happening. That's why we doubt your goodness, Father. So I just pray that our, we would see your beauty and love that's most pronounced in your Son, his life and death. And as, a, as it's applied to us, it could reawaken. It could become glimmers of light in, inside the shadows and darkness that we go through. I pray that beauty awakens and starts awakening and moves us into profound spaces. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.